Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 101 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today, you're going to meet Lee Kreitcher. Lee came up to Toronto, and we spent about an hour together, had a great conversation. And I think about well, probably 90% of you are going to love this. Why 90%? Because 90% of you, that's my very unscientific estimate are trying to turn around a church. That's what you're trying to do, just statistically. And if you planted a church like me, at some point, you're going to have to change it. And Lee did both. Uh, Over 40 years ago, he planted a church. He led it for about, I think, 13, 14 years, stepped away, went into corporate, came back to the church, and had really gotten stuck. And so he had the job of kind of rescuing it from the ditch and turning it around. And then even as an older leader, really turning it around for the next generation. It's done an incredible job. We hear his whole story today. So I think you're going to love it. And you're going to pick up some tips for what you're trying to do, I think, in your context. And hey, I want to know, what have you been up to over the last week? I hope the answer includes drinking some Starbucks on the house. (laughs) We gave away Starbucks every single day starting last Tuesday up until yesterday. And it was part of our episode 100. We made it to 100 episodes. So Uh, I turned it into Leader Appreciation Week. We just wanted to let you know how much we appreciate you. And I am so grateful for you and for all of your support of the podcast and for how you lead. And it was just a little treat every day. And uh, we tried to get as much out there as we possibly could. If you won, congrats. If not, well, hang around. Uh, We do this from time to time. Just give you some special bonuses for being awesome (laughs) listeners. And uh, if you don't yet follow me on Facebook, you can just find me on Facebook. It's just Carrie Newhoff, my name. Look for the author page, follow along there. And uh, we'll be doing things like that. I'm just starting to get into Facebook Live, by the way, too. So I do some live Q&As as well. So uh, make sure you follow there. And uh, for all of you who made the last week just so much fun, thank you. I just got back from a bike ride myself. Uh, thank goodness this is not a video podcast. Um, so that's where I listen to all my podcasts. wonder what you're doing as you listen to this episode. But um, man, wherever you find yourself, thank you so much for making this great. Hey, if you have a chance, when you stop what you're doing, can you leave a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, We're pushing in on 400 ratings now and reviews, and that's amazing. And iTunes pays attention to that. And also, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. We'd be so grateful if you did. Not only do I do this podcast, but I write a blog. And uh, I've been talking about that blog lately. And Enjoy Stewardship Solutions um, sponsors that. And we just started Uh, a daily email service. Well, not quite daily, but every time I post, which is usually two to three times, sometimes four times a week, fresh content, it will arrive in your inbox. So if you go to kerrynewhoff.com, you'll see on the right-hand column, uh, there are some opportunities to sign up. Now you need to be on a desktop to see that. So just sign up next time you're on your browser and uh, go have a look. And you can either do a weekly digest where you get all the weekly posts on a Saturday, or you can get the daily. So whenever I publish, you get it immediately. So anyway, I I would love for you to subscribe. There are tens of thousands of leaders who subscribe to that via email. Why not be one of them? That way um, you get some fresh content and uh, we get to chat from time to time too. So make sure you check that out on my blog at kerryneuhoff.com. And thanks again to Enjoy Stewardship Solutions. And then, hey, we've been talking about the Orange Tour. It's coming up real soon. We're going to open up in Atlanta on September the 9th. I'm going to be in California in September as well. 
So if you're on the East Coast, West Coast, man, we've got sites everywhere we're going to. And you can get all the details at orangetour.org. It is a chance to really bring your team together to talk about how to reach the next generation. And so you can get all the details at orangetour.org. I'd love to hang out with you. And in fact, in the cities I'll be in, which I think is 11 or 12, I'm going to be hosting a lunch for senior leaders. So make sure you register uh, now before it's too late. Tickets are going fast, orangetour.org. Now, my conversation with Lee Kreitcher, all about turning your church around. Here we go. Lee, welcome to the podcast. It's good to actually hang out in person. I'm doing more and more of these all the time in well, person interviews. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I love coming to Canada. And so fantastic time to get together. We're here in Toronto and I just interviewed you. We're in the TV studios at Crossroads Communication. I just interviewed you for Huntley Street. Mm-hmm. We got a little 12 minute interview together, but we're gonna we're gonna grill you. Okay, for the Leadership Podcast, does that work? That works just fine. Okay. You've had a fascinating time in ministry, and you've actually done the rare thing, Lee, of leading your church twice, which you write about in your brand new book for a new generation. Yeah, the church is just celebrating uh, our 40th anniversary. It started 40 years ago this summer in a uh, living room with about a half dozen people. And so I served as the lead or senior pastor for the first 13 years, and now I've served as the senior pastor for the last 13 years. And in between, you? In between, I worked for two different companies that focused on change leadership and executive coaching. Okay. So I was able to really see a lot of amazing leaders in uh, the corporate world, uh, all over the world, and... um, to be able to see things that worked well and things that didn't work well. Mm. Now, interesting jump from ministry into corporate. So did you get your MBA around that time or you had an MBA before you went into ministry? Actually, my undergraduate degree was in human resources. So, oh, okay. So that's closely tied to leadership development. But after I went in with um, into this new career is when I got my MBA uh, as sponsored by... The, the company that I was with at the time called Development Dimensions International. Oh, that's great. So yeah. you had an MBA. You worked in leadership. What did you learn in business? Because, you know, as regular listeners know, I'm a little bit fascinated having a law background with the synergy that can happen when you take leadership principles in the general marketplace and apply them to the church. I'm just convinced is going to help churches a lot. So what did you learn in your 13 years in the corporate world, leading at a fairly high level, and you were very successful at what you did? Uh, what what are some key principles that really translated back into church? Well, I think a couple things. One is just different styles of leadership, especially which styles of leadership tend to work in different circumstances, in different okay. situations. And uh, so you don't have like one style of leadership? I've got one. <laughs> you mean I need to have more? <laughs> well, I have found in different times I've had to at least adapt to some to the situation to some degree. Okay. And we can talk about that in a yeah. moment. We got but time. I think uh, perhaps in this rapidly changing world, uh, the greatest example or things that I've learned or during those years was about how to lead change okay. and the importance of changed leadership. I think it was Jack Welch who said, when the environment you're in is changing more rapidly than what's happening internally, the end is in sight. And so that's true for any organization, including the church, and the world around us is rapidly changing. So 
even though we as church leaders typically aren't trained in seminary with things like change leadership, it's perhaps one of the most important skills for us to adapt to and embrace if we're going to stay in touch with this changing world around us. So is, is change harder in the business world or in church? It's equally hard in both. The difference is you're paying people to change in, in the corporate world. And, uh, and you're asking them to donate in the church world. In other words, yeah, exactly. I want you to change and I want you to write big checks. Yes, we want okay. you to be supporting change that you actually have not asked for nor are excited about. So this is why it's hard. This is what you're saying. I, I think that makes it more complex. Wow, that that's for sure. Okay, so you learned about change management. You learned about different styles of leadership. What else did you learn in the in the corporate realm that really helped you sharpen your skill saw for when you went back into ministry for round two? I think probably when I was leading um, younger associates and how I treated them and how when they felt that I was committed to their well-being, even if it would be with another organization at some point, um, I, I, I just I just learned to love professional development. Mm-hmm. I learned to love to see people who were developing and uh, and growing and taking on new challenges and living out their potential. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing to see, no matter what um, mm-hmm. environment you're in. So you really you really became uh, a fan of developing other people while you were in corporate. I'm sure you had the seeds of that while you were in round one of ministry and and growing your church. Yeah, but. But not as much. I, I, okay. I think it was in the corporate world where, I mean, I had that value, of course. Yeah. But seeing it in action, learning how to do that more effectively, I, I think that's that sparked more in my corporate experience. No, I, I really appreciate that. So uh, let's think about your first round of ministry. So you led from 1976 until what, 1989, 19... to just about 1990, so okay. 13 and a half years, maybe. 13 and a half years. You were a young leader. You mm-hmm. were in your 20s when you started that out. Right. Tell us your church started in your living room, but it didn't end up there. It was a fairly successful run. Yeah, right? we met in a living room. Um, it was actually my mother-in-law's uh, living room. Sure. And I had about a half dozen people. Uh, didn't expect it to become more than a Bible study. But when we had about 30 or 40 people, and there were a lot of churches that were being born during that time in the late 70s, early 80s. And so people said, this is our church and we want you to be our pastor. And so we rented a hall and grew there to a few hundred and then bought some property and built, um, um, went through three building projects and ended up with about a thousand people in a very uh, healthy church at that time. Okay, so it was healthy. You decided to move into the corporate world, which you did. You were there for how many years? About 13, 13 years. Everything in your life is <laughs> yeah. breaking into 13. So now I'm waiting for my you next— got to stay one more year. So, yeah, see, see what the next 13 <laughs> years is. <laughs> okay, all right. And then in 2003, uh, you decided to shift out of corporate and, and go back. Tell me about that season. Well, we were living in Atlanta, and— our family were members of North Point Community Church with sure. Andy Stanley. And I got a call from one of the board members of the church that I had helped to found. And they said, would you consider coming back? And I immediately said no. And <laughs> multiple follow-up calls came, including, 
well, will you at least pray about it? And they said, you used to be a pastor. At least you can pray about it. <laughs> right. And I really didn't want to pray about it. But I did meet with Andy Stanley to talk about what, what it would mean to go back into this right. church. And What did he um, tell you? He basically said it would be much easier to start a new church than yep. to turn around a fading church, especially when I described to him the desperate place that the church was in. Um, but you see, I didn't. I didn't feel led to start a new church. I actually didn't even feel led, quote unquote, to go back into ministry. But I couldn't watch, you know, what was compelling to me is something that I had helped to birth. I just felt a sense of responsibility to not just watch it die. Mm. So what had happened to the church in the intervening uh, 13 years? I think it just hit a time of decline. It wasn't for a lack of um, prayer or a lack of good intentions or a lack of even spirituality, but for whatever reason, the church had um, had declined to less than 200 people. From 1,000. Yeah, and trying to support that the campus or, or the, the buildings that we had was almost impossible. We were on an interest-only plan with the bank Ooh. because we couldn't pay our mortgage. Uh, the building was kind of falling apart around us. You know, the roof was leaking. <laughs> Yeah, Nothing had been fixed. We in had a, a grand. We had a grand piano that was filled with water from a roof leak, oh. and uh, so many uh, things that looked bad. But what was what was by far the worst thing to me is the church, which had been multi generational and every generation well represented. The average age was now over fifty, and wow. growing older every year. And while the average age of our community that we were there called to serve was about thirty five, so we were. We were not serving our community. We yeah. were just serving older members of our community. And I knew that was not God's will. Wow. So you went into kind of a sinking ship. How, how much longer do you think the church had before they would have had to close the doors had there not been any intervention? It, it was probably a matter of, well, they were already discussing with other churches to just take over the building and the church as an entity would have ceased to exist. Wow. And so it was... Yeah, it was deathbed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, you talked to a few other people. Did anybody think it was a good idea to go back? Um, I'm trying to think. Hmm. There weren't a lot of people who were overly encouraging <laughs> about <laughs> about the prospects of what yeah, it would be like. And you were like. doing well in corporate, right? Yeah, I, mean, I remember I, I called my uh, my mom, and your mom's always your biggest supporter. Yeah. So I said, hey, I'm going back into ministry. She said, no, you're not. Oh, you know, really? She said, there is no way God wants you. You're, you were unhappy when you left the ministry, and you're happy now. You'll be taking a two-thirds pay cut. You'll be moving back north, and you're happy in Atlanta. You've got fr family friends. So she gave me all the reasons why it would be crazy to go back into ministry. Yeah. And I'm there like, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you went. Why did you go? Uh, I, th I felt like God was saying go. Um, mm. Actually, I didn't feel like necessarily God was saying go back and be the pastor. But I had to go and candidate and let them know. I'm willing to come if you're willing to make some changes. Okay. And so I actually, as part of the vote process, which the church had to vote for me to come back as pastor, <laughs> I gave him a top 10 list, 10 reasons to vote no for me as pastor. Did you really? Yeah. And so, you so, told them. so to me, if they had voted no, I would have stayed in Atlanta with my role as regional vice president for this company and slept totally peaceful. 
peacefully. But I felt like I had to throw my hat in a ring and but to give them a very clear preview of the fact that we would have to change dramatically to reach the next generation. Okay, so you went in with a mandate for change. Yes. Right. And to change some of the things that probably you had started 13 years ago that were still operating. Absolutely. That's interesting because I've always thought as a leader, it's one thing, Lee, to change something that somebody else has done. You know, you come in and your predecessor who's somebody else, it's like, well, we'll finish, we'll change that and, you know, rip this out and transform that. But I think it takes real courage to go back in, look in the mirror and go, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Now, time had passed, but you'd probably changed as well. Were you a different leader coming back in? Yes. Um, I was I was a dramatically different person mm. and a dramatically different leader. Um, so, and I was armed with a, a lot of wisdom, I think, from my years in corporate America, along right. with a devotion to Christ, which I had had, you know, since college. Wow. So when you went back in, what were the challenges you were facing as you saw it? Well, I think the first thing was a mindset in the church, which was um, if it was good enough for us, it should be good enough for our kids. It should be good enough for our grandkids. And so we immediately had to start a change of mindset to a question, what will it take to reach our children? Wow. So. We'd identify what are the essential things that, that that go into our core vision, and let's embrace those completely. Everything else is on the table. Mm-hmm. Everything else is on the table. If we can change something in order to better connect with the next generation, then we're going to do it. But we're not changing our beliefs, our core values, right. who we are. Gospel is still the gospel. You know, but but, but you know, we have no legacy as a church. We're not respecting. Um, our history by ending it. Hmm. Hmm. That's well said. We're not respecting our, what is it? Our history? Our history as a church, you know, we're saying, well, we've got to be true to our history. Well, our history is a history of changed lives. Right. And if our church, our church ceases to exist, there are no more changed lives. (laughs) That's such a good thought. I haven't heard it quite expressed that way. That's really, really helpful. Did people see the difference between the mission and the methods? I often talk about mission never changes, right? Because theoretically, we have the same mission as the church did 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed, but the methods change, right? Did, did people see that distinction between the way you did things and what you did? Did they see the difference? I think the longer we, we talked about it, and I mm. took uh, – we formed a leadership team – which was going to help lead the way. Um, okay. And I took that entire leadership team and their spouses to North Point so they could see what a church could be. Because you'd been worshiping there for th- about a yes. decade or more. Well, we've yeah. been worshiping there actually just for a couple of years. Oh, okay. Um, we had switched from a church that our kids hated oh. to North Point, <laughs> which um, – so we saw, for instance, I had a fight every weekend with our daughters to get them to the church that Linda and I liked, my wife right. and I liked. Um, and we thought that church was perfectly good. But we got invited to North Point, went in, and our younger daughter, who was a teenager at the time, on our way out of the first service, was on the phone to her best friend saying, you're coming to church with me next week. That's awesome. And, That's awesome. And so I said, oh, there's something. This is a 
it is a church where all generations are engaged and that's what was intriguing to me to even get me to go back into ministry. How'd you put that leadership team together? Did you just go with your existing elders or did you like cherry pick 10 people or eight people or something like that? We at the time had a board of directors and a board of elders. Yeah. Anybody who voted yes for me to come back as pastor was on the new board, was, <laughs> was on the leadership team. If someone didn't believe God wanted me to come back, then- Then they weren't on the leadership they, team. they weren't on the leadership team. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. Um, and so you kind of handpicked this group. And it's funny, I did a very similar thing when I started out ministry. It's just like you look at your existing leadership and then you go, okay, I find some other leaders and you put together an ad hoc board. They become your change management team. John Cotter writes about that in his seminal book, yes. Leading Change. So he calls it a guiding coalition. Guiding which, coalition. Yeah. Bingo. Exactly. So, so you did that and that was the basis of change. What, um, what was the hardest to change? Well, that's a good question because so many things changed. But I think uh, perhaps one of the biggest challenges was to introduce to people a a whole new way of approaching ministry that was oriented towards reaching people instead of keeping people. Mm. And so I think as we went through, I'll give you a couple examples. We had two people who were best friends who had been with the church from when we had a few dozen people. And both were in their 80s. One, basically, a person came to me and said, she's okay if we change as long as we start after her funeral. <laughs> Seriously? Somebody uh, said seriously. that out loud? And they said, and if, really? if she has to, if you force her with these changes to leave our church, and if she is buried in another church, that would be a great tragedy. <laughs> and... That is some line I, I of thought, logic. I, I said, we're going to be having a church funeral before we'd be having hers. And so, wow. Uh, and in contrast, one of this person's – and she did leave the church and she was buried in another church. Um, by contrast, one of her friends, she wasn't excited about the changes. Um, she wasn't she, – she liked the church the way it was. Mm. But her kids wouldn't come. Her grandkids yeah. wouldn't come. And so I remember a few years after we had started to change, I, I came to her and I said, hey, has it grown on you? Do you like our, st our especially our new style of music? She goes, no. <laughs> she said, I like the old choruses and hymns we used to sing. I, I wear earplugs now. And I said, well, why are you still sitting in your seat and loving the church and praying? And she said, because now my children come with me. So and, that was the shift. And my outside. grandchildren will come. And I look at the children and grandchildren, and for the first time in a long time, our church is reaching people of all generations again for Christ. And she said, reaching people for Christ is what is what, what I love. That's what I'm all about. Hmm. Curious, that woman who ended up going to another church, being buried out of another church, was she somebody who was part of your first ministry or she came in the intervening years? Oh, she was one of the first couple dozen people who attended our church way Isn't back in the Bible study day. And the things she was hanging on to were things that I taught them. So right. it's wow. not, you know, it, so that's why I never, sometimes pastors when they're trying to lead change get really offended when people can't buy into it. But these are good people. They mm. love Christ. They just want to, they just want a church that's more familiar to what they personally resonate with. Yeah. And so... Um, it's funny, as a young pastor, I always was offended when people left 
I took it personally. Mm-hmm. But here, especially with all the changes that we were making, I really didn't. Just I, stop I kept, taking it personally. I, I kept yeah. telling myself, well, I'm such a likable person. <laughs> <laughs> None of these people could be leaving because of me. It's just because of the changes. <laughs> the things we tell ourselves, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's good. But sometimes you need to to stay in the game because that's hard. How did you process that loss? I mean, when you had opposition and you had women like, you know, or people like that woman who walked away when she was part of your core team right at the very beginning and, you know, going back to 76. It, it was hard. I remember yeah. one guy who was one of our leading givers and leading members who came up and said, you know what, uh, I see what you're trying to do to reach young people. And the uh, just want you to remind you, the young people that you're trying to reach don't have checkbooks. Mm. And if you keep on this direction, I'm leaving and my checkbook is going with me. Ooh. And so that was those kind of conversations were hard, and probably about a third of the people who were there when I came when I started in two thousand and three uh, left within the first two years. Wow! Um, even though they wanted you to come back, even, even though, though they voted yes, even though they wanted what? Well, like one person who left said, "I like the idea of reaching young people, but I don't like the idea of having to change to do it." <laughs> and so. Um, Classic. It was, you know, it, it's the opposite of this. What we were doing is saying, let's do what we need to do to reach the next generation instead of that hand wringing that says, what's wrong with the next generation? Why aren't they coming without us needing to make any changes? So I just said, we're not, cha- we're not changing who we are. We're still going to lead as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But, we're, but our ministries and our programs and our approaches are all on the table. That they are not sacred. Mm-hmm. So that was hard. Any other aspects of the change that were hard on you personally? Well, I would have loved to have seen the church grow faster and perhaps more dramatically. Uh, but we did as people were leaving. I think maybe if two-thirds of the people or a larger number had left with their checkbooks, the story would have ended very differently. But I was pleased that, you know— uh, a good portion of the people did catch on with what we were trying to do. And then within a couple of years, instead of 200, we had about 400 people attending. Mm. And all of a sudden, the age of the church started to come down to match more you know, of that community. And, and that's one of the things I think pastors really need to look at and church members need to look at. Some people say, well, it's just fine that we have a church that is filled with elderly people. And it is just fine if you believe that God's vision for your church is to just reach the elderly people of right. your community. But I don't know how many churches that that's God's calling. Mm. And if you're called to reach your community, you need to look at your community the same way people look at it demographically. You have to look at it from an age perspective and say, yeah. we're, we're not being the hands and feet of Christ if we're not reaching the people where God planted us. Yeah. No, that that's good. What? What did you get the greatest pushback to of all the changes that you introduced? Where where did you find the greatest opposition? That's a good question because they were different things from different people. Sure. Because we found that the people who were in the church each championed uh, different programs, ministries, approaches. Mm-hmm. And so uh, often people would say, you can change a lot of things as long as you don't change this. Well, collectively, those were the things that often had to be changed. Yeah. So like, for instance— um, the church used to be very political. 
Okay, what do you and, mean, like Democrat, Republican? Well, yeah, but or, they we would or hand, like so and so talking about so and so. No, I mean we would hand out voters' guides heading into an election. Really? And those voter guides, and of course, any voter guide you hand out would that definitely lean very heavily toward Republican candidates okay. or Democratic candidates. Well, when you do that, the first thing you're saying to people is if you know if you're of a different party than the voters' guides we're handing out, you're really not welcome here. That's right. We're, we're not this interested in having you here. This is a Democratic or Republican church. And so people have said, you know, people said it's our job as a church to help educate people on how to vote. And I said, no, it's not. Mm. Our job is to lead as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Not to lead as many people as possible into voting for the person that I vote for, or to lead as many people as possible into um, voting for a particular party. And our pa- the, the passion for being political eliminated half of our community from coming to our church. Wow. And so when I stopped it, people said, oh, well, you don't care about getting the right candidates in. You don't care about getting godly candidates in. You don't care perhaps even about the pro-life movement because that's what we're trying to promote. And I said, I care about all those things. But the number one thing I care about is leading as many people as possible into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that will begin to drive every decision we make. Was that um, voting guide thing something you introduced in your first term or that came up in the interim? Yeah, I introduced that. You did. So we're changing what you did. All right. I thought that was a good idea. You thought it was a good idea when you were younger. There are a million things that I thought were a great idea. And then I began to see that they were, you know, we talked about this earlier, about they were kind of barking dogs to distract us from our core vision. Tell that story. In the other interview we did on, on TV... Uh, I, I asked you about that. So let's let's talk about the barking dog thing. You write about it in your book. So. Yeah. I, I, I met a pastor when I was a young pastor, and he, was, he had about a dozen people in a storefront church, and I soon realized why he wasn't going to grow much more yeah. because he told me he brought his dog to church. The dog would sit in front of the podium and bark or howl during the message. And he, he, he would laugh and say, I could tell the Holy Spirit was moving when he would really bark loudly or, or howl. <laughs> um, and he talked about how a visitor came to church and stopped and talked to him afterwards and said, you know, I like this church and I liked what you had to say, but I had trouble hearing what you had to say because the dog was barking. In the middle of the message. In the middle of the message. And he said, you know what? I love my dog. And if it's between you or the dog, the dog stays. Wow. And he was saying it with great bravado or like, right. I I am standing on my principles. Yeah. Well, we can all see that as ridiculous. Yeah. But our churches are filled with barking dogs, yeah. things that are a distraction to the vision and the calling of God on our church. We're just so used to them and right. we love them and they're family pets. <laughs> and you know, the moment you talk about eliminating any of them, people are outraged or at least can be very upset. So what were your barking dogs at Pittsburgh East when you got back in 2003? You definitely – okay, so you had things like the voter's card. What else did you change? Well, we had – there's a lot of things. For instance, you know, the sign when you drove into our church was all beat up and dilapidated. And mm. it would have told people – anybody who drove by, they would look at that sign, walk into our foyer, which was painted mauve like Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> but it had the opposite effect. The 80s um, 
all these old hand-me-down furniture. Yeah. I mean, anybody would walk in and say, this is an aging, dying church. Now, they would have been right, of course, <laughs> but we were signaling it with so many things, and they were they, they were a distraction. The length of the service was a distraction. It was... It had grown to well over two hours. Two hours. And so we, in one week, reduced it to about 65 to 70 minutes. Um, cut a lot of music, cut the length we, of the Yeah, message. we cut the length of everything. We used to have announcements that would go on forever, each oh, yeah. person getting up to promote their own ministry. And um, so there were a lot of things like that. One of the things, we're trying to reach the next generation, and we had a formal dress code. and. Wow. Basically, you're saying, we want you young men to come to our church, but you have to go clothes shopping first. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there were a number of things like that that we decided these were distracting us Hmm. from our core vision of what we're all about. And we said no to a lot of things. And to me, everything was good that we changed, that we stopped. Everything was good. That's the problem. But they were, you know, think of it like ballast on a, you know, bags of sand on a hot air balloon. Until we jettisoned a lot of things, we never could soar. Mm. So these weren't terrible things. I mean, some of them were. Maybe the dilapidated sign or the, you know, the barking dog. But basically, they weren't fundamentally broken. But you're, are you thinking like along the lines of Jim Collins, good is the enemy of great? Absolutely. Yeah. So we yeah. saw that. And yeah. Like here's a for instance, we had a food bank in our church that took a good portion of one of our wings. Well, most of the people who were coming to the food bank were from another community. We found a church in that community where we put the food bank, and we support it with volunteers and still support it financially. Many more people are being served, but it opened up a whole number of rooms for our youth, children, and youth ministry. Now, a food bank's a great thing. Yeah, but we had to make that choice of, and of course, and of course, some people left the church over it and said, "You don't care about hungry people anymore." Right. So you simplified your ministry Very dramatically. So. I think we're on similar pages with that. I know it connects us church where I serve. You know, we don't do an awful lot, and even with the food bank, I, I currently sit on the board of directors for the Berry Food Bank. They've been one of our partners from the beginning, but it's like, hey. They will be a far better food bank than we will ever be, but they will never reach unchurched people the way we can reach unchurched people. So we give them uh, generous amounts of money every year. We send volunteers their way. We publicly and privately support them. We're their biggest fans. Um, but like, hey, we're going to create an environment unchurched people want to attend. So you said something earlier that I found really interesting and I think can speak to a lot of leaders who are in the middle of transition. You said you had about a third of the people walk out the door in the first two years. Now, we've we've all experienced that with people leaving. Um, two questions around that. Number one, why did that not send you into panic? And number two, how do you know that that's just a normal thing versus a sign that you're on the wrong path? Like, how did you figure that out? Because sometimes people are leaving, and I think you said, if two-thirds had left, maybe you would have thought, "Uh uh-oh, we're on the wrong track. Like, how did you discern that? And how would a leader know that this is normal attrition and healthy attrition or inevitable attrition versus dangerous attrition where really, no, you're on the wrong path and, you know, you're running the ship into rocks and you're all going to sink? Well, that's a really good question. And I didn't know. Wow. I didn't know. All I knew is that the path we were on, the ship was going down. 
anyway. So it was possible that by trying to reach the next generation more effectively, the ship might have gone down quicker. <laughs> I mean, I knew that was possible. Um, but I couldn't – I knew for certain what we were doing was not working. Right. That we were right. reaching – that the way we were set up was designed perfectly for the people we were reaching, which was a dwindling number of aging members. Yep. And so we had to change. And so to me, I was willing to say – no matter how many people leave, we've got to do the right thing. And I think – and so it, it was it was encouraging, of course, that as right. people were leaving, others were coming. So was that a sign that kept you going? Because, I mean, if it had just been pure exit and no entrance of the people you were trying to reach, it might have been a different story. Yeah. If, if we weren't reaching anyone new over those yeah. first two years, just losing people, then – I, I still don't know that I would have come to the conclusion that I was we were doing the wrong things. Yeah, but it would have been discouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more discouraging than it was. Because right? imagine, yeah. since so many of the people we were reaching were not were unchurched people, almost yeah. no one who had been in the church who had left came back. Wow. So these were, for the most part, unchurched people who were starting to come, and so <clears throat> the giving per person was quite different. You know. Yeah, yeah. The the, the, the member who walked away and said, "I'm leaving with my checkbook." He was a little bit accurate. Yes, that, that these people didn't show up and start, uh, you know, giving at the level that maybe some of the members who had left yes. had done that. But I'd find little things. I was walking down the hall, and there was a brand new couple with one of their about a six year old. We had begun to transform our halls. Mm. children's spaces we have a children's theater and things that were just great Nickelodeon type environments and we were walking down the hall and I heard him say to his parents I think they love kids around here a six year old said that yeah wow and I thought <clears throat> that's I mean it was little things like that that really helped keep me going and another couple in their 40s who came and they said we haven't attended church anywhere for decades you know for a couple decades and I said, "Well, what brought you here?" And he said, "Our teenager is coming, and we got to we had to come see what would make a teenager actually want to come to church." That's cool. So that that kept you going. Um, what did you have a dark night? What was the darkest moment, or in the in those first couple of years? Uh, I think we had a K through twelve Christian school that had to close. Okay, and part of that was a big part of that was because of the financial. Um, and was that something you started? We, we weren't to? able to. Yes. <laughs> so you come back, you shut down all the stuff that you started. And That's so, awesome. That's so great. Uh, but that wasn't fun because so many people were at the church because they love the school. Oh. And so that was one year where we were very flat in our growth because even though some new people were coming, a fair number of people were disillusioned over the fact, well, you no longer love Christian education. <clears throat> but... The, so you the, don't love the government or want to honor them. You don't love Christian education. You clearly don't love the poor, which yes. are all the conclusions people are drawing as you're shutting down these yes. ministries. And, I mean, we had grown since our church had been born in the charismatic movement. Right. It, the idea of the Holy Spirit's work was tied to spontaneity. So we had right. an open microphone in the auditorium that anybody could come during the service and give a word of you know encouragement or read a scripture or whatever they felt led to do well the first week i came back the microphone was gone and people said well you're kicking the holy spirit out of the church oh, 
And I said, well, <laughs> I would, first of all, I would measure change lives, not by spontaneity. I, 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 yeah, I'd measure yeah, the yeah. work of the Holy Spirit, not by spontaneity, but by changed lives. Yes. And nobody's life is changing here. Wow. And, and we're not reaching people. So don't talk about how the Holy Spirit's been working, because if the Holy Spirit's been in charge of this church, he's doing a terrible job. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember if I just thought that or if <laughs> I actually you said that? it. Did I actually use my outside voice? <laughs> if the Holy Spirit's um, in charge of this church, he's doing a terrible job. But I, I had I to, we had that. to redefine that the Holy sure. Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is going to result in changed lives, not just this feeling of spontaneity. Right. Now, okay, this is totally off script, but we're way off script on this stuff. So uh, answer this if you're comfortable doing it. But I didn't realize, like you said, it was a full gospel church and that sort of thing. So rooted in, in a charismatic movement, and then you move into an extremely strategic job. Sometimes it seems, and this is just my background or maybe my bias, I have a law background, that the charismatic and the strategic seem to be at odds with each other. They're, they're seen as mutually exclusive. You probably came in as a more strategic leader after 13 years of corporate. Was that a tension you had to figure out between the spontaneous and the strategic, between the oh, whatever, and how did you navigate that? Well, it definitely was because I think it's funny. After I was out of ministry for a while and I was yeah. at just attending church, I was going to a church and I thought, I don't think I'd bring anybody to this church. Right. My colleagues, and I, when I started to go to North Point, I invited way more people to North Point than I ever had, um, even when I was pastor of my own church. Mm -hmm. Because there were things about the way we did our services, which you'd say, well, I have to take this person out to breakfast first and give them a bunch of disclaimers <laughs> before we get to the service. So I was, you know, we had been much more thinking in the early days of the church. If you pray and if you're sincere and if you just sing and study the Bible, it's all going to come together. And you know what? Sometimes it does. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think when I came back, I was saying, you know what? There's certain things that I know if you're going to lead change and if you're going to reach people. I just know. But even in our early days, our church was probably considered very mildly charismatic, more sure. you know, ev ev evangelical slash charismatic. Um, but, but so that was always my bent. But I think, you know, I had a much more, I mean, strategic would be the right way is to say it. I mean, I, I talk about five strategies that really helped us to put actions mm -hmm. into place that, that, that turned our church around um, in for a new generation. And so, I guess the word strategy would say that I believed yeah. in strategic leadership. Now, uh, it's all in the book, and we won't have time to dig into them right. each. But tell us about the five strategies. Just give us the nickel tour. I think – and these are not necessarily chronological. Right. But adopt a new mindset. Identify the essentials. What, what, what's at the heart of what you're about to do? And then everything else is on the table for change. Reduce the distractions. Elevate your standards, and then for long-term, you know, ongoing revitalization, build a mentoring culture. Hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that fifth one because you're in the middle of a, a big change. I mean, if you've been at this 40 years, clearly probably not another 30 in the tank. 
right? And and so uh, show us, tell us what's happened at what was Pittsburgh East, now Amplified Church. You changed the name. But paint a picture of what that church is like now, your church is like now, and how you're renewing generational leadership as, you know, a leader who's been doing this for four decades. Yeah, we were Pittsburgh East Community Church, and then all of a sudden we wanted to start a couple more campuses, which we Mm -hmm. did, which were no longer in Pittsburgh East, in the eastern suburbs of Pittsburgh. So we adopted the name Amplify Church, and now we have three campuses. We purposely did a few things. One, uh, each of the leaders of those campuses are young leaders who I mentor, and one of them will be my successor, a senior pastor over Amplify Church as a whole. Wow. And when you say young leaders, you mean 20s, 30s? One's mid-20s, and one is mid-30s. Okay, great. uh, so we've got a huge value about raising up those young leaders. They do speak live versus, you know, having a video oh, so of my video. Me- my message. Okay. So they get to say so they get that. And we we did put a rule in the place in our Pittsburgh East campus. We call it the seventy five percent rule. That seventy five percent of all the visible leaders during a weekend service need to be younger, as young or younger than the average age of the community. Oh, wow. And so we really are very strategic about getting young leaders into visible roles of leadership. And that has some challenges with it, but it forces us to do a lot of mentoring. Yeah, I think I know the answer to this question, but the thinking behind that is? Well, young people, the next generation doesn't want to come and watch a bunch of 60 and 70-year-olds up front in church. Yeah. If So why know, do they listen to your preaching? Um. Well, I hope that <laughs> you hope they're listening. I hope, well. to, I hope that's because it's relevant and it makes a difference in their life, and that it's high impact. But I do believe that it's coupled with, you know, even as Brian Houston talked about it not yeah. too rec- recently, um, when you have high energy, powerful worship led by the next generation, mm-hmm. it's. You know, it, 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 people are drawn. Well, we were talking about this even before we started recording. I mean, the thing that amazed me about even both at the church and also at our audience is, you know, every year I get older, I had turned 50 last year, uh, a good chunk, like the majority of the listeners now are 25 to 35 five-year-old leaders. And I just hear from them. And that's what, you know, my Facebook profile says. And the analytics in our church just gets last Sunday. It's like, gosh, is there anybody here my age anymore? And, you know, lots of, there are, but like lots of younger people, which is, which is great. And so I think that's one of the things I love about millennials is when I was 25, I don't know about you, Lee, but when I was 25, I didn't want to hear anything from anybody over 30. And now they really do. They're looking for, uh, I think we're in this interesting phase where all generations can pitch in, and if you're willing to turn over the leadership, they're willing to listen yeah. to older voices, but they don't want to be in an organization that is old. Yeah, when Paul writes, when he's talking about older men and younger men, older mm-hmm. women, younger women, he's assuming every generation's well represented in the church, and I think it's less about my age and more about my approach. Sure, I'm young at heart. Yeah, and. A lot of the older people who hung out, who stayed with the church, have said, this music has grown on me, the way, new way of ministry, and it keeps me young. Hmm. And I think there's a young attitude in our church, no matter what the age group is. So change is one thing. Transformation is another. And I think generational renewal is key to transformation. What are some things 13 years into the second 
opportunity at, at Amplify Church. What are some things that you're doing to ensure that there is total transformation and the ministry is set up for the next generation? Well, a couple. Well, we changed our um, succession plan to make sure that mm-hmm. I had somebody appointed. So you have a plan. Yes. And it's not going to be another tumultuous thing when our church goes through a change of leadership. Right. But also, we have something called three deep mentoring, where every leader is asked, who are the two people you're mentoring? So that when you're on vacation, we don't skip a beat. Right. And so, and they're typically younger people. And so you're, we're building that into our performance plans for all mm. of our staff, but also our key volunteers. Um, and we've got a leadership development approach that we worked with Leadership Network to end up nailing down that includes some very clear ways that we go about strategically and purposefully raising up young leaders, mentoring them, shoulder tapping to get them involved, and different ways, how how they can shadow us. And so we're always, I love when there's a 30-year-old guitar player who's training a 16-year-old, Yeah, you know, how to, and they're not threatened by it. They're saying, of course, I'm going to be cycling in and out of the worship team. It's not my position to hold, hmm. which is one of the biggest things that we had to change our our thinking of. You know, it, this right. is not my position to hold. It's my position to train others and mentor others, and then we can cycle in and out. And that's th- so good that the real reward is not me being up front doing my thing until the day I die. My real reward is raising up the next generation so this church doesn't die. Hmm. That's good. You know, in many ways, I think your journey, like a lot of journeys, has been a death to self, right? We're going to stop living for ourselves. We're going to start living for Christ, for the world, for the mission. Definitely. Yeah. Um, anything else you would say to the discouraged leader who's about to give up on change? Just that it's worth the fight. Mm-hmm. I think um, Tom Rainer talks about churches that died because they lived with a past as hero. And they, you know, I love the one quote he had, uh, something similar to this, that um, they said, we'll die before we change. And they did. Mm. So what kind of legacy? I I remember I did a funeral where I asked the family about, you know, the the departed loved one. Right. And I said, well, what, what, I want to personalize the service, so tell me something about them. And after a few minutes... One, one, one of the kids said he liked ice water. And I said, well, okay, that's good. What else? And there was dead silence for a few, another moment or two, another minute or two. And then one other person in the room said, he sure did like that ice water. And, oh, I, and I thought, sad. I thought, I don't want an ice water legacy. That's so sad. And you know what? If I lead a church that I like till the day I die, but the church dies after I'm gone, mm. To me, that's an ice water legacy. Yeah. And so if we can pave the way for the future, that to me is the kind of legacy that we as leaders need to have. And you know what? I'd rather be in heaven whether the church has failed or not, whether we had closed our doors or Mm -hmm. not. But I knew I tried. Yep. I've always said go broke trying, man. Go broke trying. If we're going to go broke, we're going to go broke trying. Haven't gone broke yet, but it's not a goal. But <laughs> no, like, it's not the goal. We'll put, but... it, we'll put it all on the line if we need to. That's great. Lee, what is one question no one's ever asked you about your story that you wish they had asked you? Um, that's a good question. A lot of different questions have come up, but I think 
probably how secure do you feel the more you're letting go? Oh, know? well, let me ask and that. How Let's... hard is that for you? And I, I, I know, especially early on, I was a hands-on, very hands-on mm-hmm. leader because sometimes you can't lead with a high involvement style. I mean, when Aaron tried to do that around Mount Sinai, it was disastrous yeah. To, yeah. to just go with a consensus. Um, but as time has gone on, I've become more a high involvement leader and let other people step into leadership roles. And I think it, I think that mm. internal struggle is hard when I may not agree with an approach, but how do I let it go and let that experiment proceed you know, in yep. leadership, and that yeah. might especially be with two of our other campus leaders. And I think that that inner turmoil is something we don't talk about. I mean, those who are receiving the empowerment, quote unquote, assume that you're good with it. You know, but it's so. How, how are you navigating that battle personally? I think it's just reminding, just reminding myself, this is all about the next generation, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be in this role forever. Yeah. And if I can't hand it off, you know, I've got to begin to hand it off now more and more. And I wouldn't do something, I wouldn't allow something that would violate the core of who we are as a church. But so often it's about the very things that I was willing to change in 2003. And the idea that all of a sudden now, what we changed into the first two years needs to stay the same way till the Lord comes back. That would guarantee that it's just, this is a season of health, yeah. but it'll guarantee that a season of decline is on its way. Right around the corner. That's great. Lee, people are going to want to know more. Tell them about your website and your book. Forenewgeneration.com. It'll get you to how you can get the book from Amazon or wherever you'd like to purchase it. But it also has some resources that you may find helpful to either turn around decline in your church or I think particularly to avoid decline. You know, why wait mm. till you're in decline? Yeah. And so why not strategically make sure your church is set up to effectively reach and continue to reach the next generation? That's great. Lee, it's been a great conversation. You've encouraged a lot of leaders. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Well, I hope you found that super helpful. I know I did and really enjoyed Lee's honesty and and the tips he had. And we get a summary of some of the key points as well as some quotes and all the links in the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 101. Make sure you check that out. And hey, if you appreciated this episode, share the love, share it on iTunes, share it on your social media, text a friend, email a friend, share it with your staff, whatever. Uh, Let other people know. Don't keep it to yourself. And for any ratings and reviews that come in, I'm always grateful. I read them all. So go to iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever you get it. Not only subscribe, but leave a rating and review. Next week, we're back. I'm really excited about this. This is a guy I met at a conference. His name's Andrew Bright. And I've always been fascinated with improv. And like, I had this conversation at lunch with him about improv. And I said, man, we got to talk about this on the podcast. So We're going to actually look at what leaders and communicators can learn from improv. This was a brilliant interview with Andrew Bright. You don't want to miss it again. If you subscribe, it's automatically in your inbox. Here's what else is coming up for all of you who subscribe to this podcast. Gavin Adams, a couple weeks from now from uh, Watermark Church, or used to be Watermark Church, actually now Woodstock City Church. He talks all about, well, it's just so honest and so raw. He came back from a 30-day sabbatical, and we 
got him unplugged. It was unbelievable. Uh, Casey Graham is coming back to the podcast. Kara Powell has a brand new resource I'm so excited about. She's going to be with us. Dan Ryland. Man, if, if, if there's a king of executive pastors, it's got to be Dan. He's going to be on the podcast. Tony Morgan. And then get this, Chuck Swindoll. If you don't follow me on social media, I'm going to ask you for what you want me to ask Chuck Swindoll when I interview him, because I'm interviewing him in a few weeks. So uh, follow me on social. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And again, on Facebook, just look for Carrie Newhoff author. I'll probably do a Facebook live on like what to talk to Chuck Swindoll about. Okay. Because that interview is coming up soon. So again, if you subscribe to this podcast, you get that all for free. And uh, if you haven't registered for Orange Tour yet, please do, because I want to hang out this fall. Love to see you. We're back next week. Tuesday with a fresh episode where we talk about improv and leadership and so much more. We'll see you then. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.